How many of you have Netflix? All right, all right keep your hands up. So you, those of you who don't have Netflix, see people who do, get with them after class, get their password. <laughs> and we saw a great movie last night that um, I knew the story before, but about Carlton Pearson. You know about Carlton Pearson? Carlton Pearson is an African-American man who was an evangelical preacher in, of all places, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oral Roberts considered him his black son, referred to him as his black son, right? And um, one night, uh, Carlton Pearson uh, was carrying his baby around who had the croup or something, and he was watching the news of children dying in Biafra, New Rwanda. And uh, Carlton Pearson was the kind of man who, if you sat down next to him for longer than a half a minute, he would um, ask if you were saved. And if you weren't, he would try to save your soul right on the spot. Because he was afraid that if he didn't, you would die and go to hell. So, he was watching the news and he decided that God wouldn't send those babies in Rwanda to hell. So he went back to his church that had 6,000 people in it the next Sunday. And he preached that message. And as you can imagine, the congregation just applauded and were crazy. They were so happy. That's not what happened. <laughs> it's just the, the irony that you, you would think that would be greeted with such wonderful... Oh, this is a great news, but the, the people who call themselves Christians in that particular church wanted people to go to hell. So it's an it's a interesting story. It's a true story. It's called Come Sunday, and it's on Netflix, and I encourage you to watch it. I wanted you to get something of value out of today, so that's the way we could do it. Okay. Let's begin in silence. And, um, you know, there is this um, Buddhist desire that um, we take in that all people might be well. All people might be peaceful and at ease. That all people be happy and that my desire is that the people who are gathered here find what they're looking for in this time. So, no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Um, There are a couple of people who, well, not just a couple of people, but there are a lot of people who've had significant influence on my life, and I'm talking about um, now and about um, 25 years ago or so. Um, one of those people is Robert Johnson. Um, Robert Johnson is a union analyst. Um, my analyst was trained by Robert Johnson, and Robert Johnson was trained by 
um, Carl Jung. So I'm in apostolic succession. Uh, Carl Jung. Robert Johnson is uh, still alive, and he's um, had an enormous influence on a whole generation of therapists who are oriented in the union way. And Robert Johnson was one of the people who really helped me in my own journey get some clarity about my identity as a spiritual teacher. And one of the things that Robert said was that um, what you do must be centered in the self, but not self-centered. And I wanted to begin with that because a lot of what you are about to see for the, here for the next few minutes is, could be taken as being very self-centered, and I don't want it to be that way. Sometime in the early 80s, I got introduced to this character. Um, Richard Rohr, Father Richard, as most people refer to him, is a Franciscan friar. <clears throat> and for all of the time that I have known him, he has been the animating energy behind the Center for Action and Contemplation, which is located in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, the way my acquaintance with uh, Father Richard came about was that one Sunday, shortly after Sherry and I had started attending St. Paul's, Marta Day, who was married to the senior minister, Wayne Day, at that time, um, came up to me. I just started teaching the Mind and Spirit class here, and she attended that class, and she brought me a set of cassette tapes. That's how long ago it was, right? Cassette tapes. And um, she said, I think you would find these interesting, and I found them mesmerizing. Um, they were of a conference held at this Center for Action and Contemplation with uh, Richard Rohr and a Catholic priest whose name is Ronald Rohauser, who is a spiritual director. I think he is located in San, in San Antonio. Um, I could be wrong about that. The program was called Adult Christianity and How to Get There. And I was mesmerized by those tapes. I haven't listened to them in over 30 years, so I don't know how they are now, how they hold up. But I was so intrigued, I wondered if conferences were still being held at the Center for Action and Contemplation, and if there were, could I go? And I found out that they were still being held, and that um, not only did we go to the next one, but Sherry and I have attended numerous conferences in, in New Mexico sponsored by the Center for Action and Contemplation. And you have been the beneficiaries of that because uh, I benefited from the teachings of Richard Rohr, but I also got to meet and become acquainted, even friends with Jim Finley. There was Ilya Delio. There was Russ Hudson and his partner, on, uh, Riso and Hudson on the Enneagram. Uh, there is um, Jackie Lewis, people who come here to be here over a long period of time, incredible teachers. Once, and during that time, of course, my relationship with Richard grew. And, and once, uh, when he was here in Houston a number of years ago, uh, I had my picture taken with Richard, and this picture encapsulates a lot, of, a lot of my narcissistic, smart-ass tendencies. 
because the t-shirt I'm wearing, for those of you who cannot read it, says, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. <laughs> and uh, Richard said, um, looked, at, looked at that t-shirt and he said, you know, your problem is you think that's true. And <laughs> the, the next picture I have of us was taken when we were having lunch together at Tamaya. Uh, which is located at the Santa Ana Pueblo in New Mexico for a men's gathering. And you will notice how much he has aged. <clears throat> Not me, just him. Um, he's, he's had a wonderful influence on me. Richard's written over there 35 books by my count. Um, it doesn't include the countless articles he's contributed to other publications, podcasts, other appearances. And I just fell in love with the kind of stuff that Rohr said from the very, very beginning. Um, for example, one of the first things that I ever showed in a Mind and Spirit class of his was this. We worship Jesus instead of following him on his same path. We made Jesus into a mere religion instead of a union with God and everything else. This shift made us into a religion of belonging and believing instead of a religion of transformation. My work with Rohr and the people that he introduced me to convinced me that I personally needed to do additional individual work and in the process of doing that, I decided that I needed to stop teaching the class that I was teaching here called the Mind and Spirit class. That title reflects my desire to put psychology and spirituality together. And um, so I continued to do my personal work. During that time, I did a lot of reading. I got involved in analytic training and um, out of that, um, based on some the work of Robert Johnson and others, I begin to get clearer that my calling is that of being a spiritual teacher. And there were two things that happened during this time that were critical uh, for me. One was that uh, I began to write an agenda of, if I were to teach, I had no plans to do that at the time, but if I were to teach, what would I teach? And the second thing that happened during that time is I began to have conversations with my pastor, who's Dr. Jim Bankston, who's in this room today. And um, Jim and I would meet and talk, and I was telling him what my desire was, and he was giving me some guidance. And um, one of the things that happened out of that was the um, revelation that in order to do the teaching that I wanted to do and that Jim hoped I would do here, I had to go back to seminary. And uh, I didn't like that. But um, that was the direction I was heading, and I could make a lot of stories about that. Some of them, they're really fascinating to me. And I, got, I learned some things about the politics in the Methodist church, you know, how the sausage is made during that time. And uh, so Dr. Bankston, having already had this mapped out that I didn't really see, uh, said, well, if you were to teach here, what would you call the class? And I said, well, I would call it 
ordinary life. And he kind of said, why? And But I stuck to that, and other people began to, oh, the last Sunday, I like the suggestion somebody made that we call it the extraordinary class. I like that suggestion. But when I started calling it the ordinary life class, people thought that it had something to do with life insurance. <laughs> well, it does, if you think about it. So... Um, one of the first and primary principles of my teaching is that life is not to be found elsewhere. It's here, or just in ordinary life, just what we call ordinary life. That what we're looking for is not out there, it's not back there, it's not yet to come, it's just right here. It's not even something we achieve, it's something we realize, it's something we recognize, it's something we embrace. This is what non-duality is about, and as Jim Finley has said to me, you cannot teach non-duality, it communicates itself, like grace. At any rate, this teaching agenda is something I came up with, and it got shaped about 1984. Now, that's a long time ago, okay? And... Um, this is, the, this is the teaching agenda from that time. I just want you to hear it. I might change a few words here and there, but here it is. We suffer from wanting to be one up on life, thinking that the rules of life don't apply to us. There is no life in negativity. We have a moral obligation to be happy. Our relationship to life's difficulties belongs to us. We are what we think. You're not what you think you are, but what you think you are. Life is wonderful. Love is what changes the course of our world. The fundamental purpose of life is emotional and spiritual growth. There is only the present. We get what we give. There's a good law of karma right there. And we are 100% responsible for our lives. That's it. Now, <clears throat> when I first came up with these, two things were important to me. Uh, one is I didn't have any plan to teach. That was one thing at the time. The second is that I wanted the teaching to be very non-sectarian. I wanted somebody, no matter what their religious background was or persuasion, to be able to walk into the teaching and to be able to embrace it without feeling that they had to give up on what their religious orientation was, whether it be Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, whatever it was. I wanted this to be inclusive in that. Now, I don't claim any originality about these. These are my words, but you would probably find them in um, the root teachings of any, any teacher that uh, is part of a living tradition. Now, I have never heard anybody use the phrase that we have a moral obligation to be happy. But it is the principle out of all of these that I have gotten the most pushback about. And um, 
So where did that come from? Was it me? And that's what this class is about today. The, the spiritual teachers that I have had, Richard Rohr, um, Jim Bankson, who is here, Jim Finley, Ilya Dalio, Thich Nhat Hanh, you name them. They have all been light-hearted souls. And that's one of the things that attracted me to them, was that they were happy. They were light-hearted. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh says, there is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way. Now, I think there are probably a lot of reasons that this principle gets a lot of pushback. We are not happy people, and we do not live in a happy world. I have a friend who is in the book publishing business. Um, he's a clinical psychologist who is a specialist in child psychology, and yet he publishes books. He's got his own publishing company, and it's a pretty big one. And he told me that in the year 2000, there were 50 books published in English on the general topic of happiness. I checked with him, and he said that last year, there were over 6,000 books published on the topic of happiness. So by almost any metric, we are sadder and more anxious as every year passes. So people have said things to me that indicate that using the phrase, you have a moral obligation to be happy, to someone who just lost a loved one or, or, or um, like the parents of gunned down children in Ukraine or someone who's just gotten a cancer diagnosis would be criminal. And I agree. Um, <clears throat> maybe a lot of the pushback comes from how we define happiness to start with. Happiness doesn't mean smiling all the time. It's not about never being in a bad mood. The happiness that I'm talking about has to do with living a meaningful life. In spiritual language, happiness is the opposite of being lost. It's a sense that we're traveling on a path that will cause you, when you're sitting on the front porch of the old folks' home, if you are that fortunate, all right? to be able to look back over your life and say, I'm really glad I spent it that way. This one brief, precious life that I have, I've used my gifts and my time well and wisely, and I'm glad I did that. Another thing that led me to this particular principle about happiness had to do with the results of some research I was reading at the time. Again, this is close to 40 years ago. Some people who were studying factors that could be predictors of heart attacks. And this study was confined only to men because the profession was even more paternalistic then than it is now. The leading indicators were not hypertension, blood pressure, heredity, exercise, weight, whether a person smoked or not, though these things were powerfully significant on top of these were whether the person being studied could honestly answer yes to the following questions. Are you happy? And do you like what you do? And as a personal counselor for over 50 years now, I can't tell you how many people I run into on a regular basis who hate what they do. 
for a living. They hate being put in a position of management when they're not skilled to do that, or they hate being managed the way that they're managed. I would add to that, whether it figures into physical well-being or not, I don't know, whether or not a person is judgmental or not, whether a person's critical or not. Critical and complaining people have a difficult time being happy. My teacher, George, was the one who taught me the importance of being able to be taught how to see rather than being taught what to see. Right? There's a big difference between those two. He said that if we focus on what we don't want and don't like, guess what shows up? What we don't want and what we don't like. So if I were to ask you to get up and go in the next room and count all the things that were brown, you could do that. And, and when you came back and I said, oh, by the way, how many blue things were there? You would know because you hadn't been paying attention to that. You hadn't been focused on that. So again, I'm not talking about being bright-eyed and bushy-tailed all the time. There are times when we get a mental and emotional colds, just like we do real viruses. And when we do, we don't say we're worthless people or that life is not worth living. We make allowances for that, and we live accordingly. When we're down or suffering some real emotional or physical pain, we try not to make things worse. I was lucky enough to do some consulting for Continental Airlines when it existed and in the process, I made friends with Captain Bill Nogus, who at the time was trained, the, the chief pilot, chief in, in charge of all pilot training for Continental Airlines. And Sherry and I got to spend a day going through their ground school and flying one of the simulators for several hours, <clears throat> and which was exhausting. And I found out that on a flight from L.A. to New York, a commercial airplane is off course about 90% of the time. It's true. The, the plane changes the weight because fuel is being consumed. They're the winds aloft. Those flight attendants are pushing that cart up and down the aisle. There are all these changes that take place. The plane veers off a little bit up or down sideways. The pilot doesn't look at that and say, oh, crap, I'm not a good pilot. I quit. <laughs> it just gently, now the automatic pilot does it, but gently brings the plane back in, into course. So... There are two things that determine the quality of your life almost more than anything else. And Roddy mentioned those in the announcement. One is who you hang out with. And we hang out with people in a lot of different ways. By what we watch on TV, by the social media we expose ourselves to, by the friends we have and talk to, that sort of thing. Your life is determined by who you hang out with and what we talk about. Some people spend their time talking about the Astros and the weather and the stock market, and some people don't do that. Anger and resentment are real big thieves of happiness. And yet you just notice how much of our culture is based on anger and resentment. So when I have brought up the notion of the moral obligation to be happy, some people have brought up, among other obstacles to happiness, things like, well, what about people who are starving to death in the world? What about people in war-torn countries? 
What about people who are in extreme poverty? And again, I will reference one, Thich Nhat Hanh, who has written books on anger, fear, and peace, who did his work against the background of being exiled from his war-torn country in Vietnam, or Desmond Tutu, who did his work on happiness, peace, and reconciliation against the backdrop of apartheid, or the Dalai Lama, who has written at least three books on happiness from his place in exile from Tibet in India. To say nothing of a guy named Jesus, who did his work, some of which is called the Beatitudes, which begin, happy are those who, against the backdrop of knowing that he was going to be executed. Now, you and I are people who live in the lap of luxury. And because of that, I think our primary task is to guard against and then to dismantle any myth of superiority that might taint our lives because we're mostly just lucky. And for people who are born into struggle, the work is to claim their dignity, joy, and liberation with the support and encouragement and assistance from those of us who have the resources to aid them in being full, equal partners around the table. But that's a, another topic for another time. So in the Gospel of John, <clears throat> Jesus is quoted as saying, I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy be complete. Or as Eugene Peterson translates it, I've told you these things for a purpose, that my joy might be your joy and your joy wholly mature. So, when you wake up in the morning and you open your front door, what do you get? You get what's out there. And in Houston at this time, you get the heat. And if you leave your front door open a lot, long enough, which I don't recommend, um, you get it that the weather changes. And it can change here rapidly a lot, quickly. Right? So if you do open your heart, mind, soul, body to what's out there, what do you get? You get whatever is out there. You get everything. You get what's painful. You get what's pleasant. And you know, the, the primary principle, spiritual principle that I have communicated over and over and over and over, besides the two things that are essential, use your turn signals. <laughs> I mean, it just must make somebody heartsick to have spent tens of thousands of dollars on a really expensive car and their turn signals don't work. I know they don't because I drive behind them a lot. <laughs> the other one is that you have a daily, you have an obligation to have a daily spiritual practice, those two. But the one that I also came up with is the same time that I came up with those 10 things is that the central truth of and for spiritual practice is paying attention and developing the resources to be present to whatever is and central to that is developing the capacity to be non-judgmental about what is. This is impossible to do. What is possible is to notice that it's impossible to do. And then get back on the path. 
Life is an endless challenge. And challenges are not good or bad. They're just challenges or they're opportunities. And the minute we judge them, which, as I said, we can't keep from doing, we just realize that we've fallen off the path and our spiritual work involves recognizing this and then getting back on the path without being judgmental about it. So those of you who take up a spiritual practice, let's, there are two kinds. There's meditation and contemplation. We can talk about that also sometime. But if you take up a spiritual practice and you just say you're going to spend 15, 20 minutes just paying attention to your breathing. It's very, very hard to do, okay? Particularly in our culture. We sit there and within 30 seconds we're making up a grocery list or thinking about what, I, what we're going to do next and all that sort of stuff. And, or you're sitting there thinking, when's the, if you have a, an alarm set, when's the, when's the chime going to ring? When's it going to ring? And then when it does ring, you go, oh, thank God, that's over. It's just judging, 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 evaluating all the time. Instead of just, and that's what you get the lesson of doing. It's how difficult it is to be. So the moral obligation to be happy doesn't mean that there will be no suffering nor that when there is suffering, we should ignore it. Because the only way we know the light is to be in the dark. It is through and because of our sorrows that we know what happiness is. I was uh, going to give a talk one time in Arizona, and um, I met some guy there who said, um, you're one of the speakers. And I said, yeah. And he said, uh, are you a motivational speaker? And I said, well, no, not really. He said, are you one of those speakers who talks all the time about having a positive mental attitude? <laughs> and I said, because I was being a you-know-what at the time, I said, well, I do believe that a positive mental attitude is better than a negative mental attitude. Don't you? That's the last time he spoke to me. <laughs> so... Uh, here I came up with this. Having a positive mental attitude may not solve all of your problems, but it will annoy enough people to make it worth the effort. <laughs> so if you embrace the, the challenge of having a moral, a moral op obligation to be happy, it doesn't mean the end of your difficulties, disappointments, failures, or suffering but it will make you what Jesus called the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now you think about it. Who would you rather hang out with? A miserable, dour person or somebody who seems to have tapped into a source of joy and serenity? Now, just so you'll have some idea of what's ahead of us as we continue to navigate this deep dive into the Gospel of John, we're going to talk more as we go forward about myth and metaphysics and mysticism because the big story coming for us in John is the story of resurrection. And <clears throat> I don't think ever in recorded history has there been such a mythological crisis as we are in in this country at the moment. Um, the, the way a growing percentage of the population thinks 
about the story that defines us is causing more and more division and divisiveness. Just this week at a church conference in Colorado Springs, Colorado, a member of our U.S. Congress said, and this is a quote, Jesus didn't have enough AR-15s to keep his government from killing him. Now, that this particular representative said that is not surprising when you know who it is. What is stunning is the appreciative and applauding response she got from the members of the congregation when she said that. It's hard for me to know whether to laugh or to cry at that sort of thing because here we are with so much wisdom available to us, so much tenderness within us naturally, and we cover it up to protect ourselves from insecurity. Although we, we have the potential to exercise those three things that I keep bringing up, love, honesty, and freedom, at least a huge number of people choose to live in a small, fearful prison, prison of the ego. Now, please don't misunderstand. I, I don't for a minute dismiss the anxiety that comes from the new understanding that we have of the cosmos. Our worlds are both shrinking and expanding at once in more ways and more speeds than we can possibly take in with our cognitive equipment. I grew up in a town in Tennessee where there was a cafe, a diner, a Dairy Queen, and a hamburger joint. I live now where within a 20 square block radius of my house, there are 50 different ethnic places to eat, both inexpensive and top of the line. In the neighborhood where I grew up, and this is not a, a poem to the good old days, but in the neighborhood where I grew up, if my mother did not have a cup of sugar for something she was baking, she could go next door to Mrs. Brownlow and get it. And if Mrs. Brownlow wasn't going home, she could go inside because the door was not locked, get what she needed, and go back and pay her back later. Now, in the city where I live, when I do turn on the TV, most of the time there are commercials. Seriously. Most of the time in chain channels, a commercial, commercial, commercial. And it's stunning how many of those commercials are for products like Simply Safe. The home security system that will protect me from the inevitable intruders that are just waiting out there to come in. So we can't ignore the reality of our context and we got to figure out ways to adjust and adapt and more. And I think organized religion has not done itself any favors in teaching its adherents that religion is primarily about comfort and consolation that it should lead to peace of mind. There are those elements in it, but in order to get to those elements, the founder of our faith, he meant no words about what this is going to cost you. 
And, and I don't know about you, but spiritual growth has occurred in my life when I have gone through the pits of absolute hell and, and have done things that I did not choose to do, did not want to do, and had all the answers that I thought would work completely fail me. The knowledge and wisdom my parents used to navigate life were helpful to them, but they don't work for me. They don't fit anymore. And so in the Gospel of John, you have this collective story um, put together by the followers of Jesus. And in his company, because of his teachings in word and deed, they became a community of joy, love, and fearlessness. These are the three things that marked the Johannine community. Now, you know how they kept this energy going? They attended classes like this. No, they didn't. I love that answer, but that's not right. They ate together. They had meals together. They sat around and they talked to each other like friends. They might say something like, hey, you remember that night when Nicodemus came and spent the, the whole evening with Jesus? What do you think they talked about? And they would begin to make up stories about what they thought because Nicodemus and Jesus were alone, remember? This is how the gospel got shaped. God did not one day say, hey, John, sit down and take some dictation." And one of the places where they felt most included, most accepted, most forgiven, most loved, most energized, happiest, was at the meal they shared together. It's really hard to hate somebody when you have to reach across and wipe ketchup off their chin. And, and Jesus, evidently seeing this, said to them, hey, when I'm gone, keep this up. And they did. Though later... The church turned this meal, meant to symbolize forgiveness and inclusion, into a privileged thing and a way to exclude some people. So like any family and friends of another era, era, they told stories when they sat around the table. Malachi would put a little bit different twist on it than Levi would. You had to watch out for Jacob. He was tricky. He loved to stretch the truth. And, and, and as time passed, people were attracted to these joyful, loving, fearless people. And so there would be newcomers to the group, right? And, and each group would have its own flavor. That's why we have so many different Gospels. Only four made it, but there are a lot. But there were some core consistent truths and values. Now, just enter your active imagination for a moment and imagine that that's why we're here today, that we had been attracted to one of these meals with these loving, joyous, fearful people sitting around, and, and we wanted some of that for ourselves. So we went, and we were welcome, and we would ask, hey, what's this about? And they would begin to tell us the story of Jesus. And they would say, you know, because of him, we have been transformed and given new life and hope and possibility because of the teachings and life of Jesus. Well, where is he? 
Oh, his spirit is here, but he was executed. Where did he come from? And somebody would tell a story. And over the years, that story got added to and morphed and molded. Each telling would be a smidgen different embellished. They were good storytellers. And they were telling a story. They were not reporting a news event. And the story was decades in developing. And near the end of the story, there would be something about John the baptizing man. Everybody had heard about him. He was the guy that Jesus had apprenticed himself with. He was the guy who got his head cut off. So we knew about him. And so we would ask, well, after Jesus, what happened? Who took over? And there may have been a story told about Paul, maybe not, depending on which geographical region you were in. But if there were, we would say, well, what happened to him? Well, he got executed. Oh. Well, who took over then? Well, there was Peter. Oh. What happened to him? He was executed. Well, then what happened? Well, the brother of Jesus, James, took over in Jerusalem. What happened to him? He was executed. I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know. This may not be for me. This is looking pretty bleak. And one old timer with a glint in his eye would look at us and say, yeah, it's not as bad as you think. It's worse. <laughs> but we love you. And you're welcome here. We take care of each other here. Come on, sit down and have a meal with us. And after we're done, we're going to go look in on Phyllis down the street. Her husband was taken slave by the Romans because they couldn't pay their debt. And we're going to take care of them and her children. And because we were so embraced, we embraced back. Now, if you want to move more into the territory of joy and happiness, there are three things that are required. And if we embrace them, we will be led into more joy, freedom, and happiness. And if we resist these things, we will be causing for ourselves and others trouble, unrest, conflict, and lack of peace. These are, I promise you, the things that are the true absolute, guaranteed secret of happiness. I'm sorry, I'm out of time. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll get to them sometime. Okay. The first one is nothing changes. I mean, it, it, everything, things change. Nothing lasts. There's no exception to this. And you try to get out of this, you're going to cause yourself a lot of trouble. When it comes to life and living, we're all on the same train, all heading in the same direction. Ram Dass said, we're, we're here to walk each other home. Consequently, we need an evolving faith for living evolving lives in an evolving time. There is not a single academic discipline that does not Embrace this, except, of course, for the Texas State Board of Education. <laughs> Indeed, we value the disciplines of growth and change and development. 
But many people in religion are terrified of this. And in one place, Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace. He, what he said over and over in a wide variety of ways was things are not as you thought and you are not in charge. Religion preserves and protects its power and privilege. And I've observed numerous struggles in the church over my lifetime, and they all seem to reflect that those going after doctrinal purity believe that God needs protecting. And further, that it's their job to do it. And that they are capable of doing it. I'm likely to keep repeating what I'm about to say. I've said it a lot. I will say it again and again and again. God is neither out there, up there, or back there. If you really believe that, what, this, what that makes this time is God forsaken. God's here. In you, in me, among us, Jesus taught it, and it's been the heart of living traditions from the beginning. Sacred spirit is right here. Things are forever developing, growing, and changing. The mystics know, and Jesus was a Jewish mystic, that participating in this reality is only available to the non-dual mind, which is only available to those who have a daily spiritual practice. We don't understand non-duality. We become it. So we hold in our hands right now what we tentatively know. And we agree to know and not to know at the same time. Something we enter into. It's something the ego hates. The ego wants to know and to hold and control to which God says, ha! Things change. The second thing is there is no separate self. You know, it would revolutionize our personal as well as communal and national lives if we brought into our lives the practice of treating other people as we ourselves want to be treated. This was the foundation for the social turning that is referred to as the first axial age. Treat your neighbor as you want to, treat, to be treated. And the more I've done my own work, the more I've come to see that the root of so many of our problems is that we define ourselves by the very things that separate us. Our descriptions of ourselves, what we have, what we've done, our economic educational status, our skin color, our sexual orientation, and so forth. Our American culture is built on this idea of comparison and competition. One of the things that puzzles me about the white supremacist movement is that we all have our roots in the same African tribe where back there we begin to think and develop the label homo sapiens. We all have the same tribal background. One of the most upsetting things Jesus ever taught is this principle. Your neighbor is you. Third secret to happiness is very difficult to put into words. I put these words on it. This is the way Eugene Peterson translates a passage from Mark. Self-help is no help at all. 
Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to saving yourself, your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and lose the real you? What could you ever trade yourself for? Now, in Buddhism, this is referred to as the flame moth matter. The moth sees the candle flame and is drawn to it, thinking, if moths think, that getting as close to it as possible will bring warmth and security, and of course what it brings is death. In, in dealing with my own addictions, I can clearly see, if and when I'm honest, that there's the belief that operates if some is good, more is better. You got that in your life somewhere. Some alcoholics say about alcohol, one drink would be too many and a thousand wouldn't be enough. However, the religion of our culture is consumerism. It's got more and more and more. You need more. Now, you try to point this out to an addict, and what you get in response is anything from denial, uh-uh, not me, to anger. And what Jesus got for pointing this out was execution. All fundamentalism, all prejudice, come from not accepting these three fundamental. Things change. We're connected to everyone and everything. Clinging and causing causes pain. And we don't see that this fundamentalism makes us weaker, not stronger. It makes people into bullies, not powerful. Now, <clears throat> for those of you here or there who've had a lot of resistance to my teaching that the moral obligation to be happy, the, if you've had a lot of resistance to that, I hope today's made you happy. <laughs> so um, we're done with it. So I'm going to throw you a curveball. I love to do this. The primary purpose of life is not to be happy. <laughs> we do have a moral obligation to be happy, but it's just not the primary purpose. The primary purpose of our life is ongoing spiritual and psychological growth. That's the primary purpose. The primary purpose is to be useful, to love, to speak, and be the truth, to be free, and to contribute to freedom. You do these things. You'll be happy. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step and see you here next week. Thank you.